0: Today my guest, who I was honoured to get the chance to interview, was Mr. John A. Brink. He's going to have a book coming out in September, so I would stay tuned for that, because he's almost 80 years old, and he has trained and competed as a national level bodybuilder. So in a nutshell, if you were feeling like your excuse to pursue something you were going to pursue was your age. I think John approaching age 80 has thrown all of your excuses out the window for you. We also talked about uh, John's struggles in school. When he was younger, if it was a topic that he was not passionate about, he, he struggled. And we talked about ADHD. We talked about Toastmasters, all these different things that he would have to do in order to get him to where he is today as the owner of multiple companies under the Brink Group. But something that I want to bring a lot of attention to is on May 4th is, in Holland, the remembrance of the dead. And so during the national commemoration of Remembrance Day, we remember all Dutch victims, civilians and soldiers who have been killed or murdered in the Kingdom of Netherlands or anywhere else in the world in war situations or during peacekeeping operations since the outbreak of the Second World War. So it's a pretty heartfelt, very meaningful day. And John spoke about the the positive contribution that Canada did for Holland and to hear him talk about that to me a uh, born and raised Canadian. I thought that was really special Because I think I take it for granted um, What it means to be a Canadian and now I really really it sinks in uh, I'm Very lucky to be a Canadian. So I hope if you're listening that you understand the same now May fifth in Holland is known as Liberation Day, celebrated on the fifth of May to mark the end of the occupation by Nazi Germany during World War Two. So, this is a very good moment to record a podcast with Mr. John Abrink. We talked about the times when he's had to start up from ground zero. He's had to be the the cleaning person at the at the place. He's had to. Uh, try to make a go of it with 25 dollars. now he goes into it in much better detail than i can so i hope that you listen to this one and share it with a friend and check out some past episodes thank you for listening to the lifestyle chase welcome to the lifestyle chase season two this podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. I'm your host, Chris Little. Let's get started. The Lifestyle Chase is brought to you by Yeg Fitness. Yeg Fitness is Edmonton, Alberta, Canada's healthy lifestyle community, creating and supporting active living for all. Check them out online at yegfitness.ca and on social media at yegfitness. Fitness. So welcome to episode 119 of The Lifestyle Chase and I am joined by John A. Brink. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great.
0: So when it comes down to like an introduction of who you are, if someone was to ask like, who are you, what do you do? What would your answer be?
1: I'm a a very positive individual. I'm very goal oriented very determined in terms of what I do, and I enjoy life.
0: I like that uh, that description. Um, let's dial it in to, to work-wise. Like, what is your career today? And then we'll uh, we'll take a chance to uh, go back a, a few decades later on in, in the episode here. So, like, today, what is the description of, of who you are as a uh, career-oriented person?
1: Uh, well, I have a number of companies, uh, about five or six of them. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, yeah, probably it's five. And uh, I'm the founder uh, president CEO of the Brink group of companies. Uh, part of those are uh, lumber. Lumber is the main part of our operations. We have uh, one mill in Prince George, one in Vanderhoof, one in Houston, BC. And then the other part that we do is we are, uh, have a company that deals in logistics and warehousing, interior warehousing. Uh, It's the largest warehousing company in northern British Columbia. And uh, then we are also into uh, residential uh, subdivision development and uh, uh, industrial development uh, of properties as well. So those are the main things that we do.
0: And so when it comes down to like how you balance that all out, uh, you're a very active individual. What, what does physical activity look like for you in your life?
1: Well, but usually what I do is uh, I usually get up around 5.30. Uh, you know, it's uh, very common for me. And uh, then uh, I make, uh, I'm, I'm fairly health oriented. I make a healthy breakfast. And uh, the first thing that I always do is make my bed. Uh, you know, that has been a habit. I used to be in the Air Force in Holland, drafted when I was 17, 18, and uh, so it's a habit I developed from then, and I still do that today. Uh, then, uh, from there then then uh, I usually go to work uh, at about uh, 60, 6.30, and uh, then uh, I'm fairly busy, I'm fairly involved uh, not only in our companies, we do a lot of other things. I'm very much involved in the industry, especially in the forest industry. I'm uh, uh, on the board of directors of the Council of Forest Industry. It's the the umbrella group for the forest companies in British Columbia. That includes all the larger ones, likely the largest organization, uh, lumber organization in all of Canada. Uh, I'm the longest serving director on that board, and I'm also a vice chair of that group. Uh, that uh, uh, involves me quite a bit and then, uh, you know, the other ca- things that happen, number of projects that uh, we are working on a day-to-day basis, usually we have a couple of target companies that we are looking at potential acquisitions and a number of those kind of things. And then we are fairly active in the, uh, in the community as well like to go to the gym, although there isn't much of that right now, obviously, but normally uh, uh, I've been, you know, fairly involved uh, in physical activity uh, for the last uh, 10 years and uh, both then uh, working with trainers and then both uh, competitively. I'm, uh, I believe I'm probably one of the oldest competitive uh, bodybuilders in the province at 80. This year I'm turning 80. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, was successful in, in becoming second in physique and third in bodybuilding in Northern Base Columbia with the iron ore. And then that qualified me for the provincials. And I placed there in reverse, second and third, uh, bodybuilding and physique, which qualified me for the nationals and uh, as well as the uh, arnolds and uh, so i was looking very much forward to that as well
0: so i like how you talk about how it has been like 10 years of like focusing on the gym is is there something that happened that re, really made you dial it into fitness 10 years ago or has it just been 10 years that that you've reflected on is there is there some extra meaning to that uh, 10 year time period
1: Yeah, there is actually, uh, you know, something that triggered it is that uh, when I was, uh, uh, let me see, it was in 2008 that, uh, I was 68 then, that uh, I got a close call. I got uh, uh, a case of diverticulitis that uh, became an an emergency. I have a fairly high threshold for pain. That's not good. Uh, It should put you down quickly because that would get you very quickly to the hospital. In my case, uh, it was more than 48 hours before I got to the hospital, which is nearly the threshold, uh, you know, for doing fairly major damage. Uh, I don't know if you know what it is, but it's uh, a rupture of the colon and and your body fills up with toxins that then potentially can attack other organs. And so, uh, I got my operation, and then when I saw the doctor the next day, he basically said, you came this close, you know, within millimeters of not making it out of the operating room. So, in the process, uh, uh, I, I, I was uh, in the hospital for a week, and then, uh, you know, and then from there on in, far too quickly, I went back to work and all those kind of things where, in normal cases, uh, People wait a bit. Uh, It was kind of interesting because I was going usually to a place for lunch here that, uh, you know, very quietly, small little place. I'm usually in a hurry. Uh, So I would go down there, have my lunch, a healthy bowl of soup, and then have uh, maybe a sandwich and then go back to work. And the owner of the property said to me, are you John Brink? I said, yeah, I am. And he said, that's funny because he said, my friend, was in the hospital the same time you were and the two of you in the hospital, they called you the walking death. I said, whoa, (laughs) his friend uh, took him about between four and six months to recover. And uh, with me uh, within two weeks, I was back at work actually, and uh, a bit quicker than it should be. But uh, I I lost in the process uh, uh, 25 or 30 pounds I was overweight, and I thought from that point forward, uh, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to go through all of this and then gain that again. So from there on in, in earnest, I started uh, going to the gym, got a uh, t- trainer, and uh, did that for the following 10 years.
0: So how did that uh, change your routine? Like you talked about a very regimented routine at first. Um, did anything change in, in how you wake up? Did anything change in the things that you do in a day?
1: No, basically but it happened, uh, Chris, that, uh, uh, you know, not sounding like I'm so important, but rather, uh, you know, because I'm fairly busy, I usually live by meetings that are scheduled. And, and so for me, it just became a meeting that I have to attend to. That works for my, in my life, and my system, that uh, uh, the best time for me was 11 o'clock. So automatically at 11 o'clock, everybody knew uh, they had to schedule around me because between 11 and 12, 12.30, I'm at the gym.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love that way of putting it because a lot of people who seek out personal trainers lead very similar lives. Like I know a lot of my clients, they schedule it. And then if they're working with other people, those other people don't schedule meetings during that time. But it's just a matter of sort of like I guess prioritizing that time for for wellness and for t- taking care of yourself. Another exactly. thing that you you mentioned, you talked about uh, the air force. I want to know more about that. Uh, tell me what it was like when you started in the air force, and and what were the obstacles in that in that process?
1: Okay, so uh, I was. Uh, th- this is actually a very special day for me. We are interviewing today on May the fourth, uh, obviously two thousand and one and uh you know the and uh sorry 2000 and that's a very uh uh, a special date for me because it was 75 years ago that holland was liberated and uh, the fourth of may today if you and me would start looking outside and we would be looking at holland virtually all around uh, holland uh, the flags are half massed. And what they do is they remember. So that's very special. And uh, this is still difficult for me to talk about it actually. But uh, <clears throat> tomorrow is uh, even a special day because May the 5th is when Holland was liberated by the Canadians. And uh, so I just had to tell you that uh, because otherwise you may not know that these days are very, very special. So uh, if all things would have been normal for me, I would have been there uh, today. But because of COVID-19, obviously, uh, all our plans and travel uh, arrangements uh, do not work. But those are very important days. So, what that did, uh, Chris, and that's why I'm mentioning it to you, is that right from the time that we were liberated, uh, I knew that when I grew up, I would go to Canada. I called it the land of my heroes. And I tried to go when I was 17, but my parents wouldn't let me. And then uh, Holland still had uh, a draft. And uh, so, when you're 18, uh, you know, you see when you're 17, you would get, uh, they would test you for suitability. And, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, I got uh, assigned to the Air Force. And uh, and that's something that I wanted to do. I wanted to go be in the Air Force. I wanted to become a pilot, Unfortunately, (laughs) I didn't become a pilot. they put me in air force police and special forces don't ask me why (laughs) Um, (laughs) the only thing that i can logically think about is that uh, um, i'm I'm, uh, somewhat colorblind not overly although i'm a pilot now and it doesn't affect me but that that was one of the criterias and the other one was that uh, i had uh, a brown belt in judo And they thought maybe that threw me into the category of special force, who knows. But it was uh, quite an experience uh, for 24 months, uh, heavy training, uh, you know, and and it it taught me certain routines. One of them I already talked to you about is the uh, uh, making my bed, but a lot of other routines that I have still today. If I answer the phone, I always answer it with my name. You know, so uh, <laughs> it's just a habit that I have. That's uh and then numerous other ones that are very good habits. Uh, and uh, I, I think a lot of times military, uh, you know, and uh, uh, you know, so the experience as a overall, from a young person, uh, you know, it, it kind of puts you into perspective because the training was fairly uh, heavy. Uh, and uh, and at the same time, just when you think you kind of know it all, uh, you know, you kind of realize that once you're in boot camp with 40 other guys in the same room, bets too high that they think all oh, they know it all too. So it's kind of uh, and it puts you into reality, but uh, all in all, a good experience, you know, so.
0: So I love that uh, you told uh, the meaning of today's day and tomorrow's day and just how much it means to you. I'm curious about uh, what were your emotions when you moved to Canada like what what brought you to Canada in the first place and and how did you feel to have arrived here?
1: well, I had I always say I had two dreams right from the time I was five years old uh, you know there were. Uh, you know, and the Canadians were the ones that liberated us. Uh, Right behind our house was a schoolyard where there was a section of the Canadian Red Cross and there was about 20 people that were there for about a month and they fed us every morning bread and butter and cheese and we just came through the hunger winter and, uh, you know, so and and we would go there at daybreak and, uh, you know, and, and everybody was called Johnny And, uh, you know, so although we didn't speak the language in a way, we did, you know, so uh, uh, that made uh, a terrific impression. And I always remember I got a rucksack from one of the soldiers and right from that part time forward, the whole experience of them liberating us, uh, you know, I knew that from there and then I would go to Canada, not if, but when. The the other thing that I had is as a dream, and I always believe and when I speak to uh, uh, settings where I do a fair amount of public speaking, uh, I, I talk about the, the importance of dreams and how important it is to, you know, de, de, to, to kind of define as to where do you want to go and, and how do you get there and then take it one step at a time in that direction. So the other part of uh, me was that uh, my grandfather, although I never knew him, he died when he was 39. Uh, was a master carpenter and uh, I used to see masterpieces that he had made, uh, you know, that left a real impression on me. My dad was employed for a lumber company and managed a, a smaller lumber company in Holland. And and I kind of grew up uh, in the lumber side and I, I love the lumber side. I like to work with my hands. So I was trained as a furniture maker and then later on ended, uh, you know, later on meaning just before I went to enter the air force, and after I came out again, I worked for one of the larger lumber importers in uh, Western Europe, in Holland, a company by the name of William Pont P O N T. It still exists. That had uh, about thirty or forty subsidiaries throughout Holland, and uh, and and climbed fairly la- rapidly in those ranks. And uh, but then I always kind of felt because my dad managed one of their uh, companies that I always was referred to as the son of Brink. and 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 then putting all the things together when I was twenty four, I I knew that I made up my mind this was the time for me to go to uh, to start from the bottom, you know, not using connections that William Pond had in Canada, but start with nothing. So I took one uh, suitcase, three books, a set of clothes, And, uh, you know, and then $150 when I left Skip Hall, and I made a commitment, that's the only money I would ever take out of Holland. And then the other part about it is that I could not speak the language, I didn't know a soul, all I knew is that timber and lumber was in uh, British Columbia, and my dream was to build my own lumber mill. And so that's how I... Uh, Flew to Canada and then took the train across Canada, four days, five nights, and then came to Vancouver. And then, uh, fortunately, I ran into somebody that had a German background and I could speak some German. And I told him what I wanted to do. He said, go to Prince George, 1965. It was booming. They're building brand mills and and, uh, pulp mills, lots of jobs, lots of opportunity. So I took the Greyhound to Prince George in July of 1965, stepped out of the Greyhound bus, and then uh, counted my money. I had $25.47, no job, and uh, and and didn't know anybody. So I went to the immigration office. Fortunately, there was somebody working that had a Dutch heritage. And uh, obviously, I had a bit of a cash flow problem, and... Uh, Uh, It was on a Thursday. He said, well, when do you want to start working? I said, well, tonight. And uh, he found me a a job in Cornell, which is about 75, uh, i say about 100 kilometers south of uh, Prince George. He found me a job there piling lumber. And uh, I arrived there in my gray pan, my double-breasted jacket, my white shirt and the tie, and and my little raincoat. And uh, that's how I started piling lumber that night. And... (laughs) And there were about 100 people working in the sawmill and, and the plywood plant. And every single one came down to look at this strange guy piling lumber, uh, you know, with his suit and his jacket. And, uh, you know, so uh, and, and then people can sometimes be mean. So they try to bury me in the wood. But, but they did not realize that the all-powerful is the dream. And, uh, you know, and I know that uh, those were always that uh, nobody was going to bury me, you know. So, and I was there for about a month. And then by then, I worked on the front of the chain. I was in board and room with the place. It took me, I had no transportation, so I walked to work. It took me about an hour and 15 minutes going and coming back. But, uh, you know, and then an opportunity presented itself in in Prince George, a new operation. And... uh, I was promised a job there and then started there as clean-up man and, uh, you know, and, and again, slept in uh, a small uh, building there. There's no heat, no light. and uh, But then fairly rapidly over the following year, I became more able to speak the language and I became... Uh, you know, uh, first a green chain pilot, then a green chain foreman, then a back and foreman, and then I'd be within a year and a half I was superintendent. And uh, but that didn't go fast, fast enough for me either, <laughs> you know, because I, I was in a hurry. And uh, so an opportunity presented itself in Watson Lake, Yukon, you know, the and I don't know if you're familiar with Watson Lake, Yukon, but it's uh, you know, it's uh, the mile zero. Uh, of the Alaska Highway, which is a defense highway. It is a really snaky highway. Uh, They built it on purpose that way so that from the air, if there was uh, uh, military transport going over the highway, they could not uh, line up planes to shoot on the equipment. And it was gravel. Mile zero is Dawson Creek. Watson Lake is mile 618, I believe, mile 618. So about a thousand kilometers. So I went down there, I was there for five years in Watson Lake and uh, I uh, and, and, and was general manager of a mill called Watson Lake Lumber.
0: So and, uh, with, with having worked at that location, being in a totally new environment, talking about the windy roads and stuff and being there for five years. Um, did you ever have a moment when you were like, wow, this is so out of my element, like, I, I want to quit? Like, did you ever feel like quitting at any point in, in those earlier no. years? No. So no. What, it, what is it about you that uh, keeps you going in the, in the tough days? What, what's, what's your secret?
1: I have a dream. I have a, 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 a goal and an objective, and uh, and I'm, I'm very determined. You know to uh, you know to pursue my dream, and at the same time I'm blessed that I had good experience in Holland, hands-on experience, and worked in some challenging situations there that helped me in in doing what I was doing here. But I believe the, the I, I have three things that drive me. And and in fact, I'm in the process of writing a book right now that will come out in September. And and the title of the book are the the three things that to me are the most important in my life. And I suggest to others is attitude, passion, work ethic. And uh, if you saw those here in my office and I look around and I see on the wall a sign that says, $25.47. $25, and underneath it, it says attitude, passion, work ethic. And that's what I do every day. And even now, after 45 years, when I started this company, I'm still the sole owner of all these companies. In the beginning, it was not intended to be that way, but there was nobody that believed that this could possibly work. And uh, I had to develop a whole new. Uh, uh, concept of lumber manufacturing that included finger jointing or laminating uh, short pieces of lumber into longer pieces. I was the first one to do that in Canada, and it became immensely successful. And so we are now the largest finger joint manufacturer in North America.
0: So, with your journey in where we left off, you were at that location for five years. Um, what what happened next after that?
1: What happened after that, uh, you know, I uh, again, because I'm so driven that, uh, you know, I I, uh, was a partner in the sawmill, but I wanted to get more. I want to buy it because I could not do the things that I wanted to do with the mill. I wanted to, you know, buy the mill, the partners out so I could drive or grow the operation. So I also owned quite a bit of property in Watson Lake and I owned I had, I stayed at the motel, I ended up buying the motel. So, uh, you know, that was not the best idea because the, no, the, the I did, didn't drink, the, mo, the motel had a cabaret and, uh, uh, you know, and things were pretty wild down there and a uh, uh, bit of a challenge a lot of times. And, uh, uh, you know, what's the lake, uh, there's nothing going on other than Uh, the bars, and there are lots of guys around that have lots of money, not enough skirts, and, uh, you know, so uh, it it, uh, could be a real, real challenge, and uh, there was one year where things got pretty rough, and uh, I had twice a gun pulled on me, and a couple of times a nice knife, and it was the, the year 1973 that my first daughter was born, so I had to make a decision. I know I could not stay there. I would not survive it. And uh, so I gave it all away for a dollar. And then went back to Prince George, started all over new again. And, uh, and then worked again for the sawmill that I worked for, first as a, as a all in a very short period, first as a forklift driver, then as a supervisor, and then as a cost accountant. And that was all in a period of less than a year and uh you know so uh and then uh, i started to work on uh in in uh, 1974 i started the concept of a uh, uh, secondary manufacturing of value-added plant like the one that i have now bring force products but i already had that concept in mind when i was first here In the first job that i had as a cleaner man in the evenings i would sit at home and start conceptually thinking about uh bring forest products i already designed their their uh, stationary and the concept and the operation and then was finally able to put together a business plan i took it to every single bank in town and it was a good business plan because even now i still have it and and a lot of guys that are now around me have looked at it and they said, we can't believe the the whole plan was in there and it's still very valid today. I took it to every single bank in town. I got turned down by every single one of them. And then one bank asked for advice as to what else can I put in there? I, uh, changed and modified my business plan. And, uh, you know, the one bank in particular that I went to the Royal Bank, I went about uh, 12 times down there and the 12th time that I went down there. Again, having made, uh, you know, modifications to my plan, the problem was I didn't have any equity. I had lots of good ideas and not enough equity and, and nobody willing to invest, but so I was looking for $25,000 to start this company, Brain Forest Products, and uh, with this whole new idea and this whole new concept. And uh, I still remember it like just today, because I went into the bank, back to the, apologized for, I hope I was not bothering the fellow that was looking at my, my proposal. And uh, no, no, he said, that's good. And I, I showed him what I had done in terms of adjustments to the business plan. He said, okay, let me talk to, the manager now. The manager, his name is John Beams. He still lives here. Actually, I saw him about a number of months ago, and uh, you know, and and he was about three cubicles away from where we were. I can hear him all the way from all the there. He said, "Give him the money. Give him the money." <laughs> <laughs> so I had my twenty-five thousand dollars. And that's what started uh, Brain Force Products. And I thought in the first number of months I lost fifty on top of the seventy-five, that or the twenty-five that I got. And every time a car would go by, that I thought it would pull in and say, "Okay, John, come on, give me the keys." And but that didn't happen. And uh, you know, in the first month, uh, first year, we made a few dollars. And uh, so forty-five years later, we're still there. Uh, today, the. Uh, the 13th, we are the 13th largest uh, uh, forest company in uh, British Columbia and uh, we employ uh, probably around 400 people and uh, you know, and uh, so, but I'm still like so as excited about every day that I wake up uh, at 5.30, I usually, I'm always in the hurry. I I can't wait to get to work and uh, you know, and I have this passion and I still have it today.
0: So when it came down to having to relocate again and you're selling everything for a dollar, was there any hesitation to that or just a lot of emotion that you wanted to be safe? Like, what was that thought process like?
1: The thought process simply, uh, Chris, was that uh, my daughter was born and, uh, you know, and I know I would not survive. So I had an obligation to I could not stay there because I likely would not survive it. And, uh, you know, I had twice a gun pulled at me and uh, twice a knife during that uh, summer. And uh, I know I could not survive. Yeah, I could not take the risk. So I had to do the things that uh, is the hardest thing to do is for somebody like me is you never give up. And uh, but sometimes, uh, you know, you have to weigh everything. And uh, it certainly was the right thing to do. And I don't uh, don't regret that uh, looking back.
0: So with that being said, has anybody ever like, uh, because you probably are a mentor to a lot of different people who have had to start over, they come across an obstacle. Um, What do you say to instill confidence in them when they have to start over?
1: First and foremost, always on the foundation lies, you must believe in yourself. And then if you struggle with that, seek people that you know, that's why I always go to attitude, passion, work ethic. Attitude means you have to have a positive attitude. So do not engage or, or be, be bring into your circle people that are notoriously negative, right? So seek people that are positive. Also, do not fear reaching out to people that appear to be successful, but you could not possibly bother them. You know, feel free to do that because a lot of people that are successful are very, very willing and able to, uh, you know, to uh, bounce ideas off and and help them. I I still do that now uh, frequently and, uh, you know, and uh, but you must believe in yourself, you know, so
0: with yourself, like I can see how uh, how resilient you are and how like goal oriented that you are um have you ever had a moment in in your career where you especially did not believe in yourself
1: yeah that's a
0: that's a very good question
1: i i did uh you know i grew up uh uh you know struggling and uh, 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 ptsd uh, affected my life Uh, and then uh you know the other thing that happened to me and it's it's always delicate uh you know and 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 somewhat uh you know a bit difficult for a lot of people to talk about but uh when i was uh i, I, I believe i was about uh, 58 when i picked up a book and uh you know and and the book said driven by distraction and i'm not a big reader uh, <laughs> to the contrary in fact is then i read the book and i discovered in that particular book that i'm a classic example of adhd and and it was always something that i knew you know i didn't know what 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 was you know but why i was like i was and i did not have the confidence in myself and uh you know so uh uh, give you an example, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, my brother uh, unfortunately passed away last year, about a year ago now, was one year, two years older than me, but uh, extremely successful. Uh, did university and, uh, you know, was an architect and has, has also a group in Holland. It's called the Brink Group, but the group is spelled G-R-O-E-P, and uh, very, very successful. For me, I failed grade three. And I always say, no one fails grade three. Can you imagine failing grade three? And then uh, I I then continued, and then I failed grade seven three times. And at that point, my dad said, you know, that's enough. Uh, You know, the uh, so we uh, and I always remember the school was out, and and all the kids now would go on holidays. We went to the store. A friend of him had a store, and I got three sets of coveralls there nothing fitted me because I was relatively small then. And uh, so I had this set of coveralls, the crotch, hung up by my knees. And, uh, you know, and, and that's how I went to uh, apprentice in a furniture maker uh, factory and, and learn to become a furniture maker. And then, uh, you know, then from there on in, I went to evening school and started to become more interested in the things that I liked. And uh, and then again, uh, you know, in the other company that I worked for, uh, William Pond, uh, you know, very quickly I went through the ranks there, uh, you know, because I, I was very good at the things that I wanted to be good at and the other ones, too, but I had no idea that this was. But there were periods that uh, people said that we should send them to a special school for people that have mental issues or mental problems, but it was not until I was 58 that I discovered that uh, I was a classic ADHD. Out of the 20, 20, 20 questions, I met 19. And the one that I did not meet is impulsivity because I taught myself not to. And, uh, you know, so, uh, so uh, you know, so coming back to what you were asking is that, yes, there were periods. If I worked in my own environment here, and I had about uh, three or four, I, a lot of people already said in the, uh, you know, I started the company in 1975, early 80s, we were already a sizable company. Everybody said, oh, you're successful. I didn't think so. I thought it was a failure. And, uh, and then I had difficulty uh, interacting and communicating if there were more than two or three people, I couldn't do that. So I made another step which absolutely defined me in, in the future. And that was that I joined Toastmasters in 1990. And and how that went is somebody, my sister-in-law, you know, dragged me physically down there and I did not want to go there unless I had the absolute, total assurance. Nobody would say to me, hey, John, why don't you tell us something about you? You know, and, and uh, you know, but they asked me about my name and, and the very basic things. And then... Uh, I was not going to go back. Then she dragged me to, through another one. And then finally I got into the groove and I was a Toastmaster for 10 years. And uh, became, uh, I don't know how familiar I was with Toastmasters. Uh, it, it changed my life. There's no question about that. It cost me $2 per week. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I became, through all the levels of Toastmaster, the highest is to be a distinguished Toastmaster. And I'm a distinguished Toastmaster and uh, but it changed my life now a lot of times uh, if I look back to the I could not have accomplished what I did unless I had done that and then uh, you know people talk to me about oh my god you're such a good speaker and you can do this and that and all the other things I said if you just knew you know how uh, how the struggle was getting there and uh, you know so and and that if people have uh, you know the have issues with their confidence in themselves then i was the absolute worst case that i i have seen many because of being a toastmaster you see many people that are challenged in becoming effective communicators or trying
0: yeah no i i love that uh that story and that way of putting it and i've definitely heard about uh Toastmasters and how it can really transform a person's ability to communicate. Um, something that you got me thinking about, you talked about how uh, the type of people that surround you can really influence like your your outcomes and being surrounded by positive people. Uh, can you think of some positive people that shape who you are maybe today or even just like 20, 30 years ago?
1: I always thought them out even when <clears throat> you know I was doing what I call my Uh, my unstructured MBA, (laughs) you know, selectively making choices and what I was going to focus on rather than being in an organized classroom. Obviously that's what, so I would go out, uh, uh, read Drucker, uh, uh, management by Drucker would be one and many others. I would seek out speakers and then I would seek out people that I knew were successful in, uh, in the community already in Holland and go out of my way to listen to them when they made presentations. And then later, when I came to Canada and got to know uh, these people, I would, uh, you know, the uh, seek them out and find out what they were doing and what brought them to where they were. And and but what I I always try to avoid is the negative.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. And it's very relatable for me. I'm, I'm a podcast host. That's basically what I do. I seek people out and see how they got to where they are. Um, who, who in Canada really uh, paved a trail for you as far as like people that you met, even if it was just like little small, small things that they told you about their business, if anybody?
1: Yeah, I have a number of them. The one that you may find interesting was one of the first ones that I met that was somewhat unique that had other elements to it too that uh, are interesting is that you know the uh, being uh, because i couldn't speak the language took me time to get to know the language and after i was in canada and piling lumber and and, and then finally becoming uh, a, a supervisor in the superintendent i was uh, invited for dinner to Uh, the sales manager of the company uh, that I worked for, and uh, obviously I was nervous, and uh, you know, because he was very successful in what he was doing, and knew a lot of things, and uh, the interesting part, when I was there, uh, you know, and and being used to, you know, that was very formal, and uh, I wanted to make sure that I could express myself correctly, and, uh, you know, because the the language still was a bit of a challenge, and uh, so when I talked to him, I found out that uh, you know the uh, I was obviously from Holland and he, he was familiar with Holland, and and uh, I was born in 1940 and he was in Holland during the Second World War. His name was uh, you know Jerry Wilmot, and uh, you know and then uh, what he told me is that uh, in he was in the Canadian Forces and doing uh, the liberation of Holland. Uh, they went through Northern Holland and ended up in the village that I lived in. And in fact, he was the captain of that schoolyard behind our house. Captain Jerry Wilmot. And, uh, you know, the and at the same time about him, but was amazing. And, and I'm a realist. I don't believe. And how could that possibly be if you today was standing here with me and Prince George on the place where I started this lumber mill in 1975 up to 1965 1964 there was a mill located on precisely on this footstep uh, called Norman M. Smith Norman M. Smith was owned and operated by Captain Jerry Wilmot and was bought out by uh, the company that we ended up working for him and me so uh, he became a friend and obviously I learned a lot from him but uh, it it also gave me a look into the how could it possibly happen something like that the coincidence so from there on forward uh, you know I always met Numerous people that have been successful, some of the managers of some of the mills that uh, I worked for, and then obviously uh, uh, I'm always interested in uh, interacting with people that are successful in whatever field that is, but especially those that are uh, have this uh, uh, you know are positive-minded and always searching for new opportunities and uh, new things to do. And I still do that on a daily basis.
0: I love that. Um, when it came down to COVID-19 and all of this unfolding, was that something that changed your day-to-day or was your industry kind of unaffected? Like what, what's that journey been like for you? Well,
1: obviously, uh, as you understand, we were all affected by it in, in my nearly 80 years now. I have, uh, you know, something that uh, that would match it in magnitude in terms of uh, affecting people would likely be the Second World War and the ending of that and things getting back to a sense of normality uh, for the next five, six, seven, eight years for and so for some people longer. But uh, you know, here what happened is uh, our industry already had been going through a difficult period. Because uh, you, you you being from Edmonton and probably have some exposure to the forest industry, the industry was affected by the pine beetle pandemic, which has a, an amazing effect, partially, in my opinion, at least, uh, affected uh, by uh, global warming in a way. Uh, you know, so uh, a lot of the timber that was uh, you know used for cu- being being cut in the sawmills that. Uh, exist in, in British Columbia and in Alberta uh, you know there was not enough fiber and a lot of companies had to shut down their operations so that, that was followed by a, a down pressure in the market followed then again starting in about January, February, March of this year by COVID-19 and uh, you know uh, the industry was deem- deemed to be essential Uh, And uh, but what we had to do for ourselves individually is to be very proactive in terms of uh, making sure that we have a safe environment that uh, frequently washing of hands and, uh, uh, you know, that we have gloves and that we have uh, face masks and and are very, very aware of symptoms that uh, may lead to that. I don't know about your region there, uh, Chris. And Prince George, I think we have in the northern BC area of Northern Health, which is from Cornell forward, uh, you know, we probably have about uh, 40 or 50 uh, identified cases. Most of them are recovered, 60, 70% of it. And we may have three deaths that may directly or indirectly related to that. Uh, so we are, relatively speaking, uh, uh, you know, not touched overly affected at this point. The other thing is that people are extremely proactive in terms of uh, proximity, uh, wearing masks, and uh, you know, which all has contributed. And obviously, the population here is not as dense as it would be down the lower mainland, right?
0: So in talking about that, you sort of brought up the different things that can happen. You talked about pine beetles, and I imagine you've had a lot of like economic problems or difficulties or battles throughout your career. Uh, a lot of people face those situations and they might throw their hands up in the air and try something new, but you've stayed in this industry. What What is it that uh, gives you that constant positive attitude despite economies and pine beetles and weather and and trends and stuff.
1: The more you fall down the the in and, and, and hurt and feel wounded and get back up again, then that then becomes a way of life With this company bring forest products all around us. I probably have started it over five times from the ground up. I mean, from the absolute and it's in my book. That will come out in September, but uh, at, at, uh, it shows over and over again how we were down and out. There was nothing left. Where I had to start from new, reinvent the operation, and I did that uh, at least four or five times. Uh, you know what does it do? Is that uh, I have uh, I, I I have this bound uh, determination of that uh, you know that. Uh, I can do this and, and I will find a way. If 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 you are in a situation where in the middle of, of the night you wake up and you have to talk to your bankers in the morning as to how do you going to solve your problems that gives them comfort, then you know, then the more you do that and the more it it never becomes easy. I've spent lots and lots of nights laying awake and wondering you know not so much will i survive but how can i change this operation so it becomes more effective and and again uh you know that uh is part of the attitude attitude that uh in the belief that uh, all sol- all problems can be solved and uh, uh, but first and foremost you don't give up
0: and when you are in those scenarios where you're going through the brainstorming process and understanding that you will get back up, but like how, what are three things that come to mind for you? Like, what are the things that you're focused on? Are you focused on the connections? Are you focused on certain logistics? What What comes to your mind?
1: A couple of things, probably, Chris, is that uh, you know from a very young age forward, uh, you know, I define my. Uh, my dreams and my objectives. I wanted to go into, I wanted to go to Canada. I wanted to go into the lumber business. I find that the the, the, the sooner in life you can define what your objectives are, then you can take, use your energy to become skilled in, in certain things and uh, like problem solving, operational problems. So already when I was uh, apprenticing in a, in a furniture factory. I took that very very serious, and uh, you know I beat that always earlier than anybody else because I wanted to be better than anybody else. I all, all, already as a kid I looked at things. How can we do this better and different? And uh, the same I did, uh, you know, when I was in here in Canada, uh, you know that I worked for uh, as a cleaner man and then. But what I did is I knew I had to be noticed. Once you get noticed, then from there on in, I knew the path would open forward, uh, you know, in, because uh, I had high work ethic. I'd be there early. I'd be, uh, I, I wouldn't leave until the job was done. I had always a positive can-do attitude. And, uh, you know, and so uh, th- those are some of the, uh, uh, strong points. The other one is that, uh, uh I'm blessed, uh, even at, uh, at, at 80, I have lots and lots of energy and, uh, you know, and so, and I'm fortunate there. And, and then, uh, you know, I still dream the dream. I still think in terms of goals and objectives, uh, as to, not only what do I do this afternoon or tomorrow or next week, but also looking forward 5, 10, 20 years from now, what does this company look like? And, uh, you know, and, and so I'm very much involved in the strategy. And although at the same time as the new reality, I'm looking at succession and building a team that goes well beyond me, right?
0: So in the last seven days, in the last week, what's something that's happened in your life that you're really, really just proud of?
1: I'm proud of the fact that uh, we are operating a safe operation that uh, you know, the, our employees are all uh, you know, very proactive and, and working on uh, understanding that this is this, these times are very, very difficult for us as a company. And that even with so many employees that we have that uh, I have them Uh, all part of my team and I have an obligation to try to maintain their jobs not only during the period of COVID-19 but also beyond that. And so I'm proud of that. The other thing that I'm proud of is that we're still very much part of the community in terms of uh, uh, helping and uh, I love this community and uh, you know and still being part of that. Uh, And and then at the same time uh, you know the industry uh structurally and and uh from a cost perspective is in severe difficulty and uh you know and and kind of thinking to the time that i stepped off the bus with my twenty five forty couldn't speak the language didn't have a job to now be the vice chair of the largest uh, forest uh uh, conf- uh organization in canada uh gives makes me proud and uh, and at the same time that the ones that uh the force companies that uh, elected me to be in that position. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, I'm proud of that, you know, so, uh, and, and I do the same there as I do in all the other things that I do. I give it everything I got. Yeah.
0: I love those answers. And something that stands out to me is like, I, I follow the social media and stuff. And I've noticed that as a company, Brink is very community oriented, very big on philanthropy. Um, with yourself being goal oriented, how does being one of the helpers help you towards your goals? I have my answer. I'm a big advocate for helping others, but why are you a big advocate for helping others?
1: It's part of the culture, uh, Chris. That's what I grew up, you know, is giving back. Nobody ever will broke giving back, right? So, uh, you know, and it it makes you part of the community. I did that uh, uh, even when I was here, Uh, you know, uh, 50 years ago, maybe not to the same extent because I didn't have the resources then. But I've done this. uh, uh, It's part of our culture. It's it's part of an obligation that I have is that uh, the community to us is very important.
0: I love that. And so I have one final question to wrap things up for us. If you were going to give one piece of advice to someone on how to live their life to the fullest in the most authentic way, What would that piece of advice be?
1: Find your dream. Find the right people to work with, make choices in terms of what your career should be, and then develop the passion. And once you do develop the passion, then going to work is easy and you will become successful.
0: I love that answer.
1: Along the way, if you have challenges, do not hesitate to contact people that you believe in, and they will be, in most cases, quite helpful to at least give you some feedback, you know, but that would be my advice.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. I, uh, I enjoyed it. As mentioned in this podcast episode, John has been working on a book and it sounds like it'll be coming out in September. So if you are listening to this podcast maybe a few months later, or perhaps you're interested in John, uh, keep some tabs on him. Make sure to follow his social media account. You can look him up on Facebook or Instagram and just follow, follow his journey and see when his book releases and grab yourself a copy. One of my favorite parts about uh, getting to have this conversation with him was being able to really understand the value of every conversation that we can have. And so my challenge for you for this episode is if you could have a conversation with someone that lives in the same city as you, who would it be? And if you have the guts, tag them because chances are you might start a conversation Thank you for listening. Please check out old episodes, subscribe, and uh, tag me in your posts if you're listening. We'll catch you on the next one.